Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege this week to welcome to Talk Nation Radio George Lakey, recently retired from Swarthmore College, where he was Eugene M. Wang Visiting Professor for Issues in Social Change, and where he managed the Global Nonviolent Action Database Research Project. George Lakey's first arrest was for a civil rights sit-in. He has served as an unarmed bodyguard for human rights defenders in Sri Lanka. He has led over 1,500 social change workshops on five continents and founded, and for 15 years directed Training for Change. In 2010, George Lakey was named Peace Educator of the Year and published his authoritative text on adult education called facilitating group learning. But today we will discuss George Lakey's ninth book, Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. George Lakey, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. I'm so pleased to be here. Uh, Very glad to have you. Loved the book. If someone today were to win the birth lottery and get born in the best place with the greatest health and wealth and happiness and life expectancy and security and so forth, where would that be? That would definitely be the Scandinavian countries, and it's because, uh, and the reason I know that is because in multiple indices uh, that measure economic well-being, it's the Nordic countries that come out on top. They play musical chairs on the top. One year, it's Denmark that's the that wins the happiness lottery, and then yeah. next year it's Iceland and so on. Which means you hate America, I guess. No, not at all. I, I chose. I had a great job in uh, in Norway when I lived there long ago, and I was studying there and so on, and uh, could very easily have settled down there. Uh, I had family there. I'd married into the country and chose to come back to this country because I feel my destiny is here. I, I Kind of a patriot, really. I, I hope not. God, I was joking. Let's uh, do away with patriotism if, <laughs> right. if at all possible. But uh, but what it, but do it, you call that that identity thing that makes you feel like you have a people? It's it's that thing that I've got. <laughs> I, I I call it Charlottesvilleanism or maybe Virginianism. I don't I don't know about you know why it always has to be at the level of militaries. You know, but uh, but uh, but in in all seriousness. It, the United States could do with some ability to learn from others. And here are some countries doing some things right. Uh, I mean, what, what, what are they doing differently? Why is it better there? Well, the, uh, the fundamental thing is uh, an economic approach that puts uh, people first rather than uh, something called the market first. Yeah. And so they're constantly asking themselves... How what, how do we need to tweak this model so that it'll come through more effectively for the people? For one thing, for the producers, that is, say, the, the workers. Uh, they're constantly asking, uh, what is it that, uh, how can we redesign jobs to make them more attractive? How can we make sure that workers can move from one job to the other? Because they don't believe that a square peg in a round hole is a good idea, right? So somebody might be in a job for one reason or another, that doesn't suit them at all. Or maybe they've been doing great in a job for the last 20 years, and they get bored with it, and they're ready for something new. So the Nordic countries offer free higher education, free training, free apprentice programs, uh, whatever it takes to um, enable a person to get a new start on their productive life when they're 45 or 50 or whatever it is they want to try something new. 
So it's it's a very um, people-oriented way of doing an economy. Yeah, and, and it seems that labor and workers' interests in these countries are not just focused on whoever that tiny fraction in the United States, whoever happens to be in their union, but on everybody. Uh, and that creates very different results, right? That's right. That's right. The common good is a phrase that you hear a lot over there. What What is it that looks out for the common good? On the other hand, they do, they do love to create associations that look after the interests of particular groups. For example, farmers, family farmers, have played a very important role in, in uh, Norway's development. They don't like agribusiness, and so they really emphasize and safeguard the right of uh, and the role of family farmers in producing food. So practically all the dairy, for example, even in that very, and I'm thinking now of Norway, which has only 3% of its land even available for for agriculture, um, that land is jealously guarded, and so you know real estate interests and so on can't developers can't move in and take that farmland away, and so the farmers uh, and the farmers are subsidized because it is so far in the north and the growing season is short, so they need to be subsidized by the nation as a whole in order to be able to keep going well. Um, but on the, on the other hand, they they fight for themselves. You know, they say, hey, look. Uh, what would we do for food security if the farmers were gone? And that's us, so you have to treat us well. And on the other hand, uh, since they are a minority, the majority of the country agrees with them and does favor them, and that's one reason why Norway refused to join the European Union, because the European Union as a whole is not friendly to family farmers. But it seems that in, in creating systems of support for everybody, for job counseling and training for anyone, there there ceases to be any sort of stigma attached to it. Whereas in the United States, in, you know, providing government handouts to whoever uh, is in the worst shape, uh, and, and little of those as it is, uh, there's, there's a stigma attached. And then the interests in supporting those programs are primarily uh, the interests of the very poor who have the least power to maintain or improve them. Uh, somehow having, having structures of support for everybody that then everybody takes an interest in, in including everybody's interests in farmers, uh, works better. But the United States doesn't seem to get that. No, well, it, uh, I would say, uh, based on recent polls, and I have a bunch of those polls in my book, um, a majority of Americans w- uh, would be delighted, actually, to use the Nordic model as our economic model. But the holdouts would be the 1%, so-called 1%, you know, the economic elite, because their interests are not served by the Nordic model. In fact, the Norwegian and Swedish and Danish 1% resisted like crazy the uh, the imposition of the Nordic model. They they called out the troops <laughs> against the against the farmers and workers who were the majority of the country and who were saying, you know, with middle class allies of course, saying we need a new model. We hate how much poverty there is. We hate that we don't have much individual freedom here. We don't have democracy. And we want a new day, and the uh, and the and the 
economic elite fought back and even called out the troops and killed workers and so on who were demonstrating in order to defend their privilege. And that's not really surprising because people will defend privilege very often. And that's certainly been the case historically in our country, too, that the 1% defends its privilege. So uh, they didn't wait around until they could convince their 1% that their, a new day needed to come. They, they, uh, they fought hard, nonviolently, and uh, created huge uh, nonviolent uh, movements in the streets and in the workplace and on the farms to demand and then push the 1% out, actually, so they could no longer dominate the country. And then that's what opened the space so they could invent this new thing called the, what the economists call the Nordic model. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Even in recent years, the, the far greater and, and more militant nonviolent activism in these countries uh, that already had it better in some ways than what we have in the United States. So even in the 80s pushing back against Thatcherism, you had aggressive... Uh, campaigns and the people in Denmark surrounding the legislature and even in Iceland in in post-2008, people banging pots and pans and surrounding the legislature. Uh, are these lessons for people in the United States? I think so. I mean, in Iceland, in the reference you made to their... Um their rebellion against the government that had let the bankers run wild. Well, we had let our bankers run wild, too, right? But in Iceland, they rose up and they put 3% of their population on the streets yeah. uh, in, in that in that nonviolent revolutionary upsurge and brought down the government. And sometimes I like to think, hmm, what would it be like if 3% of Americans got out of the streets and demanded we would get such a lot of change if 3% of us came forward? Um, because that is, what is it, 10 million people? It's an enormous lot of people. And if we were sharp and clear and used nonviolent tactics as the Icelanders did, we would we would have a, a fine country as well. Could, could we do that all as close to our homes as Icelanders? Because uh, Washington, D.C. is thousands of miles from most people. Well, Dr. King taught us a lesson about that because he was getting a logjam resistance to civil rights laws in Washington. So he went to Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, dislocated an industrial city. It was at that time. U.S. Steel was huge down there. And uh, created such an uproar that then Washington had to act. And then the movie Selma recently around, right, shows again um, making a tremendous uh, uproar distant from Washington, uh, that forced Washington, forced in that case LBJ, to act when he really didn't want to act. So uh, it is possible to really um, put the pressure on the national establishment, whether it's inside Oslo or or inside Stockholm or inside uh, Washington, D.C., by going to another part of the country and raising a rumpus. But if we're, if if what we're after would work best at the national level, are there are there still ways to get it at the state and local level? I mean, can we get decent, universal, single-payer health care and lower working hours and guaranteed retirement pay and family leave and real public transportation and sustainable infrastructure and so forth? Can we get these things at the local and state levels and, and take them national? I don't see how to do that, because what made the difference uh, over there was being able to push the 1% out of dominance of of the political system. 
and um, and the one percent in the United States uh, isn't really organized locally, right? I mean, th- those are families that uh, well, Wall Street's in New York, and those those uh, super rich families, um, you know, that aren't can't really be tied down by a state capital. Um, if the state said, well, you live in our state, it'd be very easy for them to move to another state. They probably already have three homes in three different states. So um, it's it, uh, it's way, way easier to gang up uh, the, the, the 1% if one does it nationally than if one tries to do it state by state. But we can act uh, locally and have a national impact? Yes, we can. Um, by creating big disturbance. We can also act locally by creating uh, laboratories, experiments that show the superiority of alternative institutions. For example, as part of my book tour, I recently went through Vermont during New Economy Week and uh, discovered a number of very promising uh, local experiments, the co-ops, and including producer co-ops that are more efficient than some of the capitalist enterprises. And so on. So we can, and and that, by the way, is also was also the Scandinavian route to power. They built a tremendous infrastructure of cooperative institutions in Sweden. Sweden was the leader, and uh, Denmark on the agricultural front was the leader in the co-op field. And then uh, Norway tagged along, and Iceland. Um, and and it was just um, fascinating, actually, to look to look historically at how how much local activism through cooperatives and developing that structure then gave people a power base so that then when they did their nonviolent direct action they weren't coming from nowhere you know or just from their own homes or right. factories but also they were coming from a place of confidence they knew that capitalism is not the only way to do an economy and then actually it's an inferior way to other ways we're speaking with George Lakey, and the book is Viking Economics. And one thing I love about the book is not just that you show that nonviolent action and organizing had this impact, that things didn't just happen by chance, but you also refute uh, very well some of the common myths put out in the U.S. about Scandinavia. Oh, well, they're just smaller, or well, this sort of racist idea, well, they're homogenous, or Norway has oil, you know, as if the United States doesn't doesn't have oil. Can you can you go through some of your responses to these claims? Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, Norway has, uh, of course, a huge bucket of oil and gas, but Sweden has zero, and Denmark has a, a tiny bit, and Iceland has zero. Uh, but they all share the Nordic system, and they all have similar uh, outcomes. So um, the the uh, and actually, Norway went through its major transition without any oil or gas. So the oil and gas is kind of the icing on top of their particular Norwegian cake, but the others don't even have that. Um, yeah, I, I'll tell you, David, I really learned a lesson about this question of scale and homogeneity, um, because I, I was skeptical about that myself. You know, I was doing serious research back and forth, back and forth, supported by Swarthmore College to learn more about the, the, the Scandinavians. And um, uh, on my way into um, Research Institute, into the conference room there on the wall, the general wall in the hall, was a framed picture of a bunch of Chinese uh, looking into the camera alongside the researchers I was about to interview. And I said, whoa, um, th- those folks look like Chinese. And they said, yeah, they were a delegation of economists and policymakers who were sent by the 
from Great Beijing by the by the uh, People's Republic in order to uh, learn from Norway, and my jaw dropped open, frankly, <laughs> because China China makes the United States look like a small country, <laughs> and it also uh, and and China is so heterogeneous. I mean, t- tons of people can't even talk common language. Um, they they it, it's phenomenal to think of uh, of China being able to learn something from tiny Norway. So I said that, and they said we wondered the same thing, frankly. And as soon as we sat this Chinese delegation down in our conference room, we said, "Why are you here?" <laughs> and so they had a moment when the Chinese explained that when it comes to the economy, there's some things that don't scale up that, that do need to be you know, done in a small way, um, and other things that scale up fine. And uh, there's some things that, are, have, that where cultural difference makes quite a, quite a difference, but there are other things where culture doesn't matter, and you can just uh, extrapolate from one place to another. So I really got to thinking about that, and I thought about Social Security, which is a system that works fine in tiny Iceland with 320,000 people, but it works fine in the United States. Um, in fact, it works so fine that the 1% wants to expropriate it and put it on Wall Street That's right. instead of letting us keep it. Uh, and Medicare, which works really fine in the U.S., uh, the the studies show that people who are on Medicare much prefer it to the health the private health plan that they had before. Um, and well, Medicare works in Scandinavia. Medicare works here in this huge country. Um, so the Chinese were interested in Medicare. So, uh, yeah, so some things can scale up and some things can't. So mm-hmm. if we chose to get serious about the Nordic model and started developing the political heft so we could impose it here, or not impose it but adapt it for our country, then we'll want to pay attention to scale, of course, and some a lot of things will probably scale up just fine, yeah. and some things might. Not. And 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 a lot of things look like they obviously almost certainly would work just fine, but haven't been tried. Uh, and 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 reading your book, I read about you know I think it was in Sweden uh, experimenting with shorter working hours to see if that actually increases productivity and all these sorts of experimentation and one of these four countries learning something and the other three benefiting the way people imagine the United States states as laboratories of experimentation. But the expectation there in Scandinavia is that whatever's learned will be acted on. Whereas in the United States, my expectation is that, you know, if they learn that prisons actually increase crime, the result will be well, is there more profit? Is there more corruption in building more prisons? Well, then we'll just build more prisons. There's there's no expectation that that results will follow knowledge uh, in the United States. So there's there's this level of corruption that has to be overcome before we can even, you know, benefit. I mean, we all know that it's that it's more effective to provide better lives than to provide more prisons. Uh, that that it costs less, has better results, and so forth. But there's no there's no expectation that our government will act on that information. That's right. That's right. If it collides with the interests of the one percent, then the government certainly will not implement it. Actually, and that's why Obamacare, for example, is such an odd kind of patchwork quilt. It was a step forward, but it was tooth and nail, right, to get it through because so so many of the promising uh, ideas were blocked by big pharmacy uh, or big uh, you know, private hospitals or. 
the big insurance company. So it was necessary to come up with something that's sort of very, very unwieldy and is falling, I think, of its own weight. Um, because we didn't have what Barack Obama actually had said in 2008, which was what we really needed in this country is single-payer health care. That is what we really need is Medicare for all. He knew that that is the rational system. It's the system of, of all the other rich countries. We're the outlier. He knew that that's the correct system. But he also didn't believe that the American people would fight for it. And yeah. he knew he couldn't make it happen because a president isn't a dictator in our country. A president gets uh, vetoed by 1% whenever the president gets out of line in their, in their opinion. <laughs> so, and he didn't really believe that we had the, uh, the guts to stand up and demand, um, demand Medicare for all. And so that's why he went through all that negotiation and, and ended up with something that was a step forward, but... You know, part of that incrementalist thing that yeah. keeps us so frustrated. Well, I'm not saying he's wrong about the U.S. public in 2008. I can't swear. I can't swear either way. But uh, he did not campaign on single payer. He campaigned against it. Uh, exactly. Dennis Kucinich campaigned for it and won far greater applause, but far less media support uh, as a result. Uh, and President Obama sent the labor unions around banning anyone from their rallies who would have single payer on a sign because they wanted to completely censor the idea from the conversation. So so he may have he, he may have like we now know Hillary Clinton admits in private that single payer is the only thing that works and her husband actually blurts it out publicly now but uh, but he didn't just, you know, hold off on that. He actively campaigned to uh, to oppose it and and so we haven't really given it a try with uh, you know with any sort of national political leadership. Um, it it, it would be right. it, it won't come from elected officials. It'll have to come from the grassroots. That's what I mean. If we were waiting for the elected officials, for example, to end legal uh, racial segregation, we would still be waiting. Right. And, and, and if it's up to them, we may get it back again. Uh, the, 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 the other big factor, it seems to me here, uh, you know, maybe this is my curiously idiosyncratic uh, uh, impression, but none of these countries have trillion dollar a year militaries. Uh, And we, you know, we have all these endless discussions of economics in the United States, uh, almost none of which even mention the existence of this thing that eats up over half of federal discretionary spending every year, a huge chunk of the U.S. economy counterproductively, just in economic terms, dumped into this thing. Uh, and these other countries don't have it. Is, I mean, isn't this a big, a big difference that weighs on this discussion? Oh, yes, it does. Sure. The Scandinavian countries are not uh, centers of an empire, and so they don't have to do all that military spending in order to dominate other countries around the world. Um, and they and they wouldn't think of doing it, actually. I mean, if you ask the average uh, Scandinavian, uh, would you be willing to give up uh, your excellent health care system uh, and have one like the U.S. in order to... Um, you know, in order to fund a big military, right. are you kidding? Or if you would, you be willing to give up free higher education 
and in order to fund a big military, they would look at you like you were crazy. <laughs> yeah. but, the, but, but the majority of people in the United States, as you know, would share their opinion as well uh, and would right. trade a, a sure. chunk of the U.S. military. Of course, most people in the United States have no idea what the size of the U.S. military is. But once they're told, they would trade a huge chunk of it for a decent uh, single-payer health care system or, right. or anything else. And, of course, single-payer health care actually costs less than existing U.S. health care so you don't actually have to trade anything to get it. But uh, it, it seems like what's missing is organization. I mean, you cite in the 80s with this rightward push in the U.S. and Britain that people in Scandinavia didn't just resist, but they went on the offensive and they proposed and, and struggled for grander uh, rights and policies and programs uh, than were existent then. Whereas in the United States, the typical reaction to a to a, a right-wing uh, proposal is to come out and wisely propose only half of it. You know? right. uh, how, how do we change that mentality? How do we, David? I've been, I've been talking it up, especially since the election victory of Trump, because um, already I hear people wanting to go on the defensive. Let's try to defend Obamacare, defend previous gains, and so on, which was exactly the wrong mistake that we made when Reagan came into office. People went on the defensive. One of the rare points where Gandhi and military generals agree is that you don't win anything on the defensive. You win, you win through going on the offensive. And that is, uh, that is the strategic principle we need to adopt now, and that's what was successful in Scandinavia, as you said. They went on the offensive, and they kept pushing on behalf of a vision. Now, we do have a problem in the U.S. about there not being a broadly held vision of what it is we want. We've, we've been way too fragmented, and well let's you know let's get at least decent uh law enforcement so that our so the police aren't killing unarmed people or let's do this let's do this specific thing right but we haven't been very good at generating a vision and w the good news from black lives matters is that on august 1st the movement for black lives did um put out in public a vision of an economy that would support racial justice and that was yeah. a, a my, Frankly, tears came to my eyes when I read the substance of the vision because it is not only because it is so broad and uh, and there's been a tendency not, as I said, to be broad, but this is a really broad vision. And But also, uh, the reason I was so moved was that the vision is in alignment with the Nordic economic model, yeah. which means that the movement for black lives is not coming up, you know, just out of its imagination with a utopian proposal, but they're actually um, they're actually proposing something that we know works because it has a 60-plus year track record of success, of outperforming the United States. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a big step forward, and now is the time to go on the offensive on behalf of that vision instead of going on the defense 
which I hear too many people talking about. How could we defend this and protect that? And and that Black Lives Matter platform is actually right on foreign policy as well, which is yeah. incredibly rare in U.S. Uh, left-leaning politics. Uh, so uh, it, it is a, a wonderful vision and, and what we need. We have uh, less than a, a minute left. I, I'm, I'm struck, in fact, by the fact that what you're proposing actually exists, and we're constantly hearing in the United States that it can't be done in theory. You know how how do we how do we get people to look at the reality and learn from it? Well, my book I think is already uh, making a difference. Uh, the feedback I get from the Northwest, like Washington State and Alaska, where I've been most recently, but also in the Midwest, Iowa and North Dakota, and so is people saying. Thank you for explaining in clear terms in a very readable book, because they, they find it a page-turner. They say, hey, this isn't an economics text, and I say, of course it isn't. Right. Um, so they say, this is practical. It's obviously practical for the United States. And here you describe it in detail with anecdotes and illustrations from uh, where it's been operating. Got to leave it there, George. That's the point of the book. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. The book is Viking Economics. Highly recommend it. George Lakey, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for asking me, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.